Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo has a film for you that can only be described as lewd, lascivious, nefarious, and downright dirty. In a word... It's very, very inappropriate for the young ones. Uh, Yes, we are here to talk about one of the most notorious films of the 1930s, one of the primo acting jobs by one Barbara Stanwyck, and a film that would be one of the beacons for a signal of decline in the pre-code era. I speak, of course, of 1933's Babyface. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. you gave me ever since I was 14 months had been nothing but men dirty rotten men and you're lower than any of them I'll hate you as long as I live oh not here somebody with what could I do He's my boss, and I have to earn my own living. Are you letting me go? I'll need everything I've given you. All your bonds and securities. I can't do it. I have to think of myself. I've gone through a lot to get those things. My life has been bitter and hard. I'm not like other women. Get out of here, or I'll... Willie, you've got to marry me. If you don't, I'll kill myself.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1933, the world saw Babyface, or at least a version of it, that, while very, very pulled back, was still sinister enough to incur the wrath of the production board and, consequently, the entire moral stratosphere of the 1930s. (laughs) Gasp! Oh my god! But, fear not fellow filmgoers, for in 1934, the production code was instilled, and films like Babyface would be harder and harder to make. But as time has gone on, people have learned not to be so prudish, and as a result, films like Babyface, whether in its pre-release version that was discovered many years later, or its theatrical version, would become beloved in the eyes of film fans everywhere. But just how do we see the world of Babyface on our screens today, and how do we see the techniques of filmmaking included in our current repertoire? And how does the pre-code era have something to say about the modern filmmaking and film-going landscape? Well, to answer that, we need a star when it comes to the Ballyhoo. We need a star, and the star Ballyhoo player has to be that raconteur of the Real Nerds podcast, the gentleman who's brought you Cary Grant and Irene Dunn and Carol Lombard. He is now here to give you some Barbara Stanwyck. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show Mr. Ryan Frost. Hello, friends and enemies. It's good to see you again. (laughs) You know, you kept saying that you were going to use that as an introduction to a podcast for so many years, and at last you've done it. (laughs) I know. I I, I was reminded, (laughs) ironically enough, when... You were texting me earlier today, and I sent you, like I always do, Cary Grant gifts. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, I got to work that in. It's time. It's time. It's 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 taken how many episodes have you been on? Like five or something like that? And so now- Something like that. Fifth time's the charm, as they've always said in the world. <laughs> um, welcome back. You, uh, Thanks you have, for having me. Yeah, you have not been on since Irene Dunn. However, I, I will I will tell you this because uh, I don't uh, I don't always do the number sharing on the show. I mean, like I I take good pride in it, but it's not the reason we do this show. However, there was a point last year where yours was at least the third most downloaded episode of this show when we covered Irene Dunn for Showboat and for My Favorite Wife, which I think is not only a testament to the discussion that we had surrounding Showboat, but to the power of Irene Dunn. Like there was a, there was a big pull for that. So you've got it. You've got your, uh, that was your star making role as it were. You, you worked up the Ballyhoo ranks and now you're in the star, the star stratosphere as it were. Well, I'm, I guess I'm third billing then. So I'm like the, <laughs> what are you? The Paul uh, Henry, I'm like the uh, uh, George Brent. of <laughs> What a of, way. Uh, Ballyhoo. What a way to what a way to transition here. So now, um, I will say though that like it's it's been a while since you've been here. Um, in that time, uh, a lot of things have occurred within the real nerd stratosphere. Uh, why I wanted you to talk a little bit about for the audience at home, uh, what we got to do last week at the Fan Expo. I, it was quite a treat. Tell us a little bit about what what got to uh, go down. Uh, yeah, we. Actually, our booth was a year in the making. I always have these ideas for our booth. Well, Brad usually comes up with them. Every once in a while, I come up with an idea that I think is going to be grand. Mm-hmm. And last year, I asked Brad, I said, dude, we should make a blockbuster video homage booth. Mm-hmm. And Brad, being the uh, designer and graphic artist that he is, ran with it and 
crushed it. Yeah. Um, he made it everything I wanted it to be. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we basically recreated a 1993 scene at your local blockbuster video. Mm-hmm. It's really a testament to Brad's vision. I mean, my only input, and it's a lot like um, some of our uh, pod show episodes. Mm-hmm. My only input is I come up with the idea. I'm like the the perfect executive producer. I come up with an idea, and I basically tell more talented people to do it. Mm-hmm. And you're like um, you're like George Lucas pitching the movie Radioland Murders and saying like, "All right, now go make it." Like <laughs> you know, yeah. Or I mean, um, or Steven Spielberg going like, "Make a time travel movie, Bob. Go do that." <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that you know that it's great and. Um, I, I always try and I, I hope I'm successful at it. I give, um, Brad the proper credit because the only thing I do feel bad is because I do most of the interviews and you do some of them as well, but I, I kind of get a lot of credit for, <laughs> for the stuff. booth <laughs> and, um, really all I did was tell him what to do, um, my ideas he put it all together and built it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's the visionary guy. I, I'm like the idea guy. I'm, um, yeah, I don't know. The I, I think the executive producer is the it, best it, way to describe it. EP or, you know, story guy. I mean, there's a lot of people who were idea people in, in golden age Hollywood and regular Hollywood today, even that are just really good at pitching a story. Um, John, yeah, you know, John, like, John, John Peters isn't one of them because he kept wanting spiders in movies for some reason, but you're not John Peters. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm like the George Kakor because mm. I, I, you know, when I'm on set, I just fucking, you know, sit back and let the actors do all the good work mm-hmm. or maybe, and maybe Leo McCary's a better um, pole because he lets them Le- improvise. I think Leo's a little bit better because he, he's good at assembling the talent and basically, just saying, like, all right, now do your thing. Like, there's a lot of trust yeah. that you you put trust into the creative end of the spectrum without exactly. interference. And Brad yeah. was definitely the Cary Grant because uh, leading up to it, he was really nervous about if it would work. Mm-hmm. And I just I just told him, I was like, dude, I'm telling you, it's it looks good. It, it, and um, it was very rewarding for people to come in and really enjoy it. And I think. Um, I mean, the interviews will be up soon. Uh, we just happened to fall in a really busy period. But I think we have almost four hours of interviews. Yeah. Um, and we got such great response from it. We even got um, a, a byline in the West word of the 10 biggest surprises of Fan Expo. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, it's just it's, it's cool, man. I, you know, and, and people came up and we made new friends. Mm-hmm. And we actually, I mean, I don't do it for the likes. I gave that up a long time ago. Um, I do it for the love of hanging out with my friends and getting to experience stuff like that. But we gained tons more followers and um, and it's nice, you know? We it, it was It was interesting doing it this year because the year before we didn't have a ton of um, a traffic by comparison. And now granted... Where we were located last year was right near podcast yeah. peak, as it were. So, well, and also too, and um, this is not a detriment to to Brad, but I think our idea for the booth last year was a little lacking. Um, it didn't have a really good identity. It was a sound recording booth, mm-hmm. which in in theory is a good idea because we're a podcast. But, but it just 
it just didn't grab you like this one did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Th- I, this one had a great feeling of nostalgia, nostalgia. And <laughs> for some reason, I can't say that word. Nostalgia. And, <laughs> you say yes. it like Boris Karloff for a second. <laughs> yes. Um, and it just connected with people. Mm-hmm. And I learned, and I mean, I should have, again, I don't do it for the likes. I really don't. I do it to have fun and, the experience um and I, I think we exceeded those experiences this year and I, I i know i play this character on real nerds if you see the pod show where i'm this like arrogant prick i'm really not that way at all you're uh, not <laughs> no <laughs> there's some inside baseball for your for your listeners i'm really not that big of an ass the real um, the real ryan frost comes on to ballyhoo the fake one yes. goes on to real nerds <laughs> yeah I, i'm the haze code on ballyhoo i'm a little more reserved um mm-hmm. yeah you're, uh, no you're, but yeah just, just tempered a little bit as it were <laughs> yes no, i mean if you actually listen to our episodes i am Silly, but I'm not like I am on the pod show. I'm not that gregarious. I think there's a definite and, character trait we all possess on Real Nerds when we do it that kind of like yeah. like like I'm supposed to be the disruptor with my lists, and yet like there not every list that I do has a curveball. It, although no, my, my number it, seven does tend to upset for some reason. <laughs> and, and in all honesty, you know, I actually I had the biggest sweep ever in a film explosion uh, when I put the fog at number ten. Right, it was which, your number one. Which it but does, your 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 yeah. reputation precedes you, my friend. Exactly. Well, yours does too, in the respect of just like you know, you're. Uh, I mean, on real nerds, you'll be a little bit more louder. I guess is the way I would describe it. Not in terms yeah. of like volume, but in terms of like it's almost like you're project. You, you were a theater kid. You understand what I'm saying. You're projecting a lot more. Uh, in, yeah. in terms of energy, and uh, and, and yeah. if you and if you meet me at like the uh, fan expo or in real life or even on the real real nerds episodes mm-hmm. i'm not that way at all um, no, no you're 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 genial and relaxed it's actually funny because you you're you describing yourself but you and and insane in the same sentence describing brad as carrie the carrie grant of building this booth <laughs> it just made me think of like just a scenario of bringing a baby with the booth where you're going like now nah, david i mean brad you you'll do fine with this display yeah. at the museum like <laughs> you, you, you know and i and that is when i think about it i am kind of like carrie grant you know i'm really cool mm-hmm. um but I have this persona in in the public eye that's a lot different than my yeah, <laughs> yeah. well we private one. What have we discussed about Mr. Grant? He is he wanted to be Cary Grant too. You know this duality, yeah. the duality of it all. Yeah, I'm like two faced. Yeah, um, but yeah, no. So it was really cool. Uh, thanks for giving me the platform. But I, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun this year, and honestly, uh, I didn't stress out as much because they didn't uh, put me on any panels. And it seemed this year that a lot of their panels were just a lot of um, uh, big time celebrity panels who usually have their own moderator and Fan Expo has their own moderator, which is fine. Yeah, um, yeah. it's it does seem like the and this is not by any means meant as a criticism. It's it feels like the corporate entity has consumed what used yeah. to be a very local thing. Um, yeah, and that's fine. And mm-hmm. I um you'll you'll hear it uh soon on the podcast i interviewed local voice actor extraordinaire brian cummings again yeah and we we mentioned that and i mean he's been our booth partner for i don't know seven years 
Yeah, I, um, I would say so. Like when I started really coming to the convention with you in 2018, I think, um, I, I met him for the first time there and I had never met him before. He ended up being one of my biggest like convention buddies because of us trading old timey stories with each other. He yeah, he, sure. he worked. We actually got to watch. Actually, this is a funny. It's a, it's sort of a yesteryearish story. He told me he told me when we were at the booth, look up honeycomb uh, motorcycles on YouTube. And so I looked up honeycomb uh, honeycomb commercial motorcycles, and he was in a 1980s honeycombs commercial for honeycomb cereal. With the honeycombs big, yeah, 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 and he's on a motor. He's in a motorcycle gang. It was really, really strange to be like you. We've been friends for how long, and you haven't mentioned this before. <laughs> like, and the funny thing is, is if you know him, he's so far removed from a motorcycle gang guy. Yeah, um, no, he's he's just very a really relaxed. sweet man mm-hmm. and very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, he's showing off his versatility. Yeah, you know? he's actually. I talked to him. We're gonna get him on Ballyhoo to talk some showbiz stuff because he worked his um his mentor was Do- the great Dawes Butler, um and so that talking a little bit about Dawes Butler's legacy would be fun. Um, but it's funny we were um you know I I will tell you that 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 the fan expo was my first time behind the mic in over a month because I had taken mm-hmm. a long month long break from doing any recording of any kind. Um, I went on vacation. I, I did a little bit of relaxing on my end. And when I came back, you might have noticed that I was a little different uh, at, behind the mic, Ryan. I mean, I was uh, I, I felt a little bit more uh, uh, moral, a little bit just. I was swearing off all different vices. You could have said that I had caught a code. <laughs> a production code, that is. Ryan, with that, we're going to segue into babyface. <laughs> uh, Zach... Your friend, work on your your, your segues. No, I'm proud of this. I worked on it all week. <laughs> I'm gonna put a drum, a, a, a but up bump sound effect in the edit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna remove your little quip there and say like Zach, that was awesome. Like just do the. <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, Zach, but, that was awesome. Yeah, that, there Way you go. Bad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. You gave me enough of the snippet there. Thank you for the timing. Um, but but to to segue from real nerds into all sincerity to to babyface. I want to kick it off with a question, not so much about your history with this movie, because I believe this was the first time you had seen it was around this year because of our Glee of 33 that we're doing. Correct. Uh, uh, which, for people who may not know, <clears throat> Ryan and I made a pact before the beginning of the year to cover the year 1933 all year. And with the goal being, and I guess this is an announcement, at the end of the year or at the beginning of next year, we will do a sort of film explosion for 1933. So it's going to be a fun little experiment. But I wanted to know, having talked with you for so long about Golden Age Hollywood, I noticed a trend where more often than not, you don't mention directors so much as you do stars. Is there a particular reason that the star the star element attracts you so much because I know that it it tends to be a little bit more of a point of discussion for you. Um, is there any particular reason behind that? I think, and this is just my personal opinion mm-hmm. um, that I, I and you know this, you've known me for ten years now, I don't know, something like that. ten um, long years. <laughs> yes. Um, that 
directors to me, my favorite director is Sam Raimi. And the reason I love Sam Raimi is I can look at a Sam Raimi film and know it's a Sam Raimi film, mm-hmm. much like you and a Coen Brothers film or a Wes Anderson film. I can see that in the early years of Hollywood. I'm talking about the 1930, um, some some stuff um, like The Kid and um, The Freshman, some silent films I love. Um, there isn't as much leeway into the directors having a vision. Mm. Um, I, I think the studio system, um, because of how they turned out films back then, right. also plays a part in that. Uh, when I expand on it, it's because what people don't understand now, I'm obviously if they're listening to your podcast, they probably do, but for the sake of this could be someone's first podcast, mm. you know, in, in the time, because, you know, I love Cary Grant, but, you know, he, he hadn't, when he signed his first contract with Paramount, he would do a film and when it wrapped, he'd have a weekend and he'd come back the next week and be, be on another film. Right. So it's like a nine to five, let's churn out movies. Then it loses some of the vision. I think that some directors have now some sneak through. I think, um, the night of the hunter by Charles Lawton is one of them. Um, but, and that's why, so I gravitate towards the stars because I also think that Hollywood at that time did cater to the stars mm-hmm. uh, more so. Um, and I, I literally just happened to come across a memory on Facebook of six years ago when I bought the awful truth mm-hmm. on blu-ray just as a blind buy mm-hmm. because when i grew up I, I i i loved north by northwest my grandfather loved it and i says oh you know this carrie grant fellow i remember him from north by northwest and mm-hmm. when i sat down and watched the awful truth i was immediately like uh in love with carrie grant and then obviously with irene dunn i think irene dunn is so beautiful she is so funny and she is so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I gravitate towards the stars. Um, Cause I think the film to separate themselves, I think rely more on the acting and the writing than more so than on the directing. If I, that makes any sense. I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I was thinking about this when preparing that question to, to if I could give you my impression of how I, mm-hmm. I've, how I've always seen it from your, like seeing you, is that sure. I think that one one of your great strengths on Real Nerds, and it's been the same in terms of Ballyhoo, is that you have a great talent for discerning personality and clarifying the persona that each actor can portray um, and, and or seeing strengths in how they can be versatile. Like, uh, put aside Golden Age Hollywood, you've done um, like binges for Emily Blunt and Kate Blanchett on Real Nerds. Robert Downey Jr. is another one. All actors who carry with them one quality or another that keep them in the element of a star versus, say, just an actor um, or a uh, unique personality. Like, I think it's safe to say that Kate Blanchett because of the way she commands the screen and commands our attention through her own very, very brash and bold personality. Like anything she does is going to command our eyes to the screen. That's no different than Cary Grant's persona of the, the cool, charming fella will command our attention as well. And I think that it, it's a valuable asset 
because it will also allow you to recognize actors you don't think work as well or character actors that might stick out in one place or another, like a Ralph Bellamy, for example. I mean, you've watched Ralph Bellamy in more than one film because of his versatility, and you've gotten to see him either be put in the same role two different times or do something completely different like the Wolfman. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, and I actually think you're you're spot on um, because I do tend to gravitate towards actors, more so not the character actors, but the ones that entertain me. And mm-hmm. um, that's why I, I, Robert Downey Jr. is one of my favorites. Cary Grant's one of my favorites. Tom Cruise is one of my favorites. And I think that's just because they constantly entertain me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. They have this presence. And that's why, too, uh, when we get talking about Babyface, Barbara Stanwyck is incredible. Yeah. And I think um, whether uh, I, I blind buy her movies all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so something like uh, I just watched 40 Guns where it's not um, I mean, a few months ago. It's not like her best movie, but her playing this cattle rancher who runs this town. Like she just has this presence about her. And whether it's, uh, you know, Double Indemnity, which obviously is the most classic noir film ever. But then in something like Babyface, where when we get to it, there, there, there's a scene very early in the film that she goes from this lovable daughter to when she berates her father, I think is one of the best performances I've seen in any film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that moment sucks you in so much that, mm-hmm. uh, and the, and, and to fairness, it, it shot really well too. Because Barbara Stanwyck was, uh, I think, a, a smaller lady, like five three. Oh yeah. And and uh, Alfred Green, he, he he keeps the camera low, and I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. He keeps it low at that point, mm-hmm. so it's a, she's her top of her head's almost on top of the screen, and he towers over her. So there's points where the directors do have a little bit more say. Um, but yeah, but, but I guess that's a long winded answer of why in golden age Hollywood, I tend to gravitate towards the stars. I, I like that assessment of Alfred Green's work. Cause he's not a director that you would, um, peg as anything beyond a workaday director, but he does. I think sometimes the best job a director can do is make you, is make you believe that he's not there. Um, and, and be invisible as long as he is commanding the shots, to such a degree that you can um, you can understand the intent and the camera language is communicating as such, you don't need to be as flashy as other directors do. Now, I think that a combination of those elements does make you stand out as a director, even if you're not as flashy as a Hitchcock. It just depends on what it is. Like for me, William Wellman, who directed Wings, directed um, The Public Enemy as well. And he does a lot of um, uh, World War One films um, within the 1930s, uh, especially in the pre-code era. And I, my impression of him is when I think of him, I think of speed. I think of I think of, a, of 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 masculinity to a certain extent, or at least a version of masculinity that existed at that point, and unfortunately still exists today. Um, and uh, I also get the sense of grit out of his films, which you can also get out of a Hawks film. But I think Hawks frames it film by film, depending on what's yeah. needed. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, someone like Howard Hawks, 
his epic scale is is translates incredibly well to film. Yeah. I mean, if if you're looking at directors from that era that stand out, he's one Leo McCary. Um, but someone like, you know, Alfred Green to me is the studio guy. And I'm not saying it in a bad way. No. But no. he he's a he's a guy who they could trust to put I mean, I don't his filmography, he directed tons of films. Yeah. And especially did. in 1933. So to me, it sounds like he's a working guy. He gives, you know, Warner Brothers in this instance exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. And well, <laughs> I mean, close, <laughs> close. Um, but, but you know what I mean? Like he, he's a guy they could trust. And I, I think there is something for being that kind of director. It's funny looking at Green's work beyond the 1930s um he he has a couple of names that i would want to bring up in terms of like giving you the sense of what you're talking about too like amongst the things he had did in the 1940s were the jolson story copacabana the jackie robinson story invasion invasion usa and the eddie Cantor story with his last film being Top Banana with Phil Silvers. I think this is a guy who was very good at making the stars the focal point. Um, because yeah, I think it's fair. Think of the Jolson story. For anybody who hasn't seen it, um, it's it's a, it's a movie. Um, it, or uh, like it, it, But that movie is sold on Larry Parks' performance and Al Jolson singing over Larry Parks' lip syncing. I think he is good at framing the subject but not making it about him. Uh, Copacabana mm. is another instance where, like, <clears throat> whether it succeeds or not, he makes Carmen Miranda and Groucho Marx the stars of those movies. Um, and so I, I think that he is a guy who is able to frame his actors and his subjects with more focus and spotlight power than... I think that's fair. Yeah, because, like, even if Hitchcock is spotlighting grace kelly you know it's alfred hitchcock framing grace kelly you know it's kind of true hard to hard to deny when one of her greatest entrances in cinema history is the shot that hitchcock shot of her in rear window entering his apartment like that 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 kind of power you know that there's two people at work there um but the the thing about Babyface. And why it stands out with its power has to do twofold. It has to do with who you just mentioned, Barbara Stanwyck, who we have talked about before in terms of double indemnity. But also it has to do with uh, a a little thing called the production code. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ryan, did you did you did you hear thunder where you're at? I, yeah, I heard someone smiting me from above. Oh, God, I feel judged instantly. Oh, God, this is terrible. Yes. The pre-code era allowed a movie like Babyface to exist. However, though, when people think of the pre-code era, I don't know how many of them are clarified on what that pre-code era fully meant. Now, I will, I will, I will preface this by stating that my interest in pre-code film as a whole started with me seeing a clip of Babyface. I knew about pre-code and I knew about the determination. My fascination with the differences started with there was a documentary <clears throat> included in one of the big deluxe sets of Casablanca. There's a thing called the Warner You must remember this the story of Warner Brothers. And in yeah, the it's great. in the first episode 
they have Scorsese on because if it involves Hollywood history, he is required by law to be in the making of feature. Especially Warner Brothers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they have him on speed dial going like, yeah. Oh, um, some obscure film from 1947. All right, I'll be there. Bye. <laughs> like it, it's almost like uh, if he had a if he had a superpower, it would probably be instant like instant teleportation to the studio. <laughs> um, but he was talking about the pre code era, and they talk. He talked about the notoriousness of Babyface, and the clip that they showed was that scene you're talking about where she lays into her father and chews her out. Or choose him out. What I didn't know was that that was from the pre-release version. And if you watch the theatrical final cut of this film that was released to the general public, that whole that whole scene is not included. It's only parts of that scene. Now, yeah, you might be asking, well, what's the big difference? Well, there is a lot of difference. Not the least of which is a very key line that will bring uh, that will that we will come to. But these are actions that were taken during the production code and its formation even before the code was fully cemented in 1934. I think it would be valuable, Ryan, for us to talk a little bit about the history of the code itself in conjunction with the production of Babyface. Now, for sources and substance, there's uh, plenty of uh, featurettes and documentaries on it, but a big one uh, you can definitely point to would be Thou Shalt Not Sin, uh, which is included in TCM's Forbidden Hollywood Volume 2, available on DVD now. You can actually probably still pick that up through Warner Archive. Hmm. Another good one is the book Sin and Soft Focus. Um, and uh, oddly enough, for the production of this film in particular, AFI ended up having a lot of great pointed resources that also cited a lot of different articles, some of which I found um, through Variety for um, our note-taking process here. Now, uh the formation of the code is sort of a long in the waiting wings scenario that was occurring in regards to cinema itself as a commercial commodity and the rise in a moral majority or a moral, even a moral minority, if you want to consider it, because I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but there was a period where alcohol was forbidden. <laughs> oh yeah that's right we had to go to the speakeasies to yeah, drink exactly now many people may not know that prohibition it it stems from a majority of sorts but it's instigated in a lot of respects by a very very vocal minority of dry supporters as it were um and uh the same can kind of be said for hollywood and the desire from the public to have a cleaner morality. But there's, but it's more complicated than that. I think that it's very much state-by-state, case-by-case basis in a lot of sense. Part of it is based on religion. Part of it seems to be also just based on where the country is at that time. Now, at the time that the code is about to take, uh, take place in even existing— we are kind of inundated with a twofold of scandalous Hollywood stories. The first is the w- murder of William Desmond Taylor, but the other big one, and I think this is the one that everybody knows more more uh, uh, bluntly, is Fatty Arbuckle's trial for rape and manslaughter, um, which even though Arbuckle was acquitted, the press had built up his trial in such a way 
of the outrage. Like it was so sensationalist and it thus caused a lot of outrage. And this creates a very huge cosmic swirl where a couple of things happen. Number one, states, several states in the in the nation were planning their own form of overall censorship on a state-by-state basis. This came as a result of the Mutual Film Corporation v. Industrial Commission of Ohio Supreme Court case. In that trial, the Supreme Court deemed that film was a strictly uh, was strictly a commerce area and therefore not protected under the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment would allow to free speech, which means that censorship would be non-constitutional. However, because it's considered commerce, it is not protected according to that decision. Now, this decision would be overturned in 1952, but until then, this left local, state, and city censorship boards uh, uh, no uh, qualms about setting up their own offices. Prior to that decision, and pri- or prior to the code, I should say, there were seven different boards. The New York State Censorship Board, Massachusetts had its own office, the Pen- Pennsylvania State Board of Censors, Ohio Board of Censors, the Maryland State Board of Censors, Kansas State Board, and the Virginia State Board. Of those groups that I mentioned, Ryan... Maryland would be the last one to abolish their censorship board in 1981. Wow. So these things lasted all the way up into the rock and cocaine 80s. And the the remainder of those groups that were mentioned would be dismantled anywhere between 1955 and 1968. So there was already a push and an effort to do this. And the studios... Rightfully so, are like, oh, <laughs> like, uh, they do not want people interfering with the way they conduct business. Now, I think you and I are intelligent enough to discern that reason. Uh, it's not strictly a case of we don't want the government interfering in a private enterprise. It more has to do with these studios do know what sells. They're not stupid. Uh, oh, yeah. And let's face it, even though... There can be a push against the South Park movie. Everybody wants to see the South Park movie, <laughs> like, or at least a good majority of them. Or to put it in a better sense, um, let me put it this way. The language in Deadpool did not stop people from going to Deadpool because anybody would probably want to get a glimpse at a foul-mouthed superhero. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, is that sensationalism can sell, especially in the movies. There's something... If there's something forbidden or even taboo to certain extents, cinema has had a known trajectory of latching onto it and creating a digestible product out of it. The last thing they want to do is lose that ability because it makes the job of storytelling more difficult because on top of finding a story to tell, then you have to consider what are you eliminating from it so that it doesn't go against this moral code. So the studios said, you know what we're going to do? Let's get a dupe to uh, to run a self-regulatory board. So they want to create something that they can manage themselves and pinky swear with the public that they will never break. <laughs> uh, and so they need a sucker, Ryan. Um, but they need a sucker who's smart enough to understand that he's that he's gonna uh, that that he's gonna be able to be taken seriously. So they get Will Hayes. 
the Harding administration's postmaster general and a Presbyterian elder to boot. Uh, Which to- is really ironic because, you know, Harding was <laughs> <laughs> notorious for affairs and being an asshole. So, yeah, I, it's it's a very uh, it's very interesting that the, the the studios need Hayes and Hayes does take his job seriously. He does. He's not he's not so much a dupe, as I said, so much as that he is. He thinks that he's going to actually instill change now at a certain point. He does become an authority along with another notorious figure in the code scheme. But there is a period between 1921 and uh, when they're starting to form this and the final formation of the uh, motion picture producers and distributors of America, the MPPDA, um, where he wasn't taken as seriously. The studios... And uh, is kind of like, you've got to admire the audacity of this. They set up this code. The studios were then given suggestions by Hayes to work up a formula for success that worked film worked with filmmakers in advance. By 1927, it became an imperative upon an overall list of do's and do nots. The formation of this list was overseen by E.H. Allen at Paramount. Saul Wurzel of Fox Film in, uh, in an era before 20th Century Fox Films existed, uh, and Irving Thalberg, um, a, a little-known boy genius from MGM. Nobody's ever heard of him. Uh, and, uh, and they would comprise a list of 11 items to avoid based on the assessment and objection from various state censor boards. So they get it basically took every note they probably ever received and uh, codified it into a into a broad do and do not list um, or a very specific do and not do do not list. So these include not tr- uh, not not uh, promoting the idea of an affair. Uh, the law must be treated with the utmost respect and zero criticism. Uh, 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 sexual imagery is strictly verboten. And what do you think happens, Ryan? Do you think that this code actually takes effect in 1927? No, no. <laughs> no. Now, what if I told you that one of the writers of this list, Irving Thalberg, handed in this list and then within the span of three years blatantly disregarded it when he put out the divorcee? <laughs> <laughs> the guy who wrote the list also said, like, yeah, but that doesn't apply to Norma Shira in the divorcee. And that's the funny part of it is the the author, one of the authors of it was also one of the people who was very good at getting around it and even at times just flat out defying it. Uh, it it's it's kind of fascinating and especially when sound film enters the equation with with silent film it's a little easier to hide and to remove yourself from this, but. The moment you have a sound film, now you're able to hear language. And thusly, you're able to hear even worse things than you would only just see. (laughs) (laughs) Certain dialogue can indicate a character's intention, and that can be somewhere in the line of sin. Uh, Or you can even, through voice, connotate something as homosexuality another part of the code where things were expressly forbidden is that homosexuality was not to be portrayed in any circumstance whatsoever in fact they were they would refer to it in the industry as it 
Um, and that's when Stephen King saw that little factoid and said, say, what if it was just a clown that invaded Derry? Um, and, uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or as we saw in the North by Northwest trailer, Cary Grant is it. <laughs> <laughs> my, still my favorite screen grab of all time. Uh, <laughs> you have your favorite Cary Grant trailer moment. I have mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, um, so from, from 1927 to 1933, Film studios do work with the code, but work would be a um, a kind assessment of it. It really was doing the bare, 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 bare minimum, uh, and the 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 eventual involvement of one Joseph Breen is what would eventually give the code teeth in tandem with the formation of uh, a, a, an oath pledged by the Catholic Legion of Decency which would make it a mortal sin to see movies put on their condemned list. That really was a big uh, death nail in the coffin. Um, But there was this period where things were allowed to be pretty explicit and pretty brazen. And Babyface comes as as an arguable peak. And no matter if you're watching the pre-release version or the theatrical version, it's still a very saucy film, so to speak. Um, uh, a steamy flick, if you were. Um, and the formation of this film is interesting. It's not anything unique. It's one of many films like this that comes out before and even slightly after it. What makes it notorious is that it's a, it's a response to another film from MGM, number one. But number two is that it ups the ante so much that it created a huge... Uh, a, a huge problem for Warner Brothers upon trying to release it. Now, for a little bit of production history on it, there's nothing extremely specific that I was able to find in the actual production. Like, there's no fun story of, like, Barbara Stanwyck going like, yeah, yeah, fun fact, I uh, played King Kong on that miniature after they were done filming and pretended to destroy it like a giant gorilla. You know, nothing fun like that. Um, it, it more has to do with just basic facts. This film was shot in 18 days at a budget of $187,000. Okay, pretty standard cost uh, for a mostly talking drama. Um, the model shots, which we can talk about here in a little bit, are very, very artistic, but they're, they're pretty cheap to make. Like, they're not super expensive. Um, and the, the, the influence on this is far more character-driven than necessarily special effects-driven. Um, let me put it this way. Dracula cost $340,000. Uh, that needed it because castles and, you know, uh, gothic uh, gothic imagery. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, and Bela Lugosi. Yeah, I cost, the, well, actually, I cost the least money. He took that job because he was Dracula. <laughs> da- David, Dracula. David Manners got paid more than me. How the fuck does that make any sense? <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you fuck you universal <laughs> oh god poor bella but no a 187 grand it really even when you inflate it on the calculator not a big budget for a movie pretty reasonable right well um this would not be the final budget as it would seem um and a lot of it had to do with the story and how it even played out period no matter what you did with it the story was conceived by one Mark Canfield, which if you rearrange the letters and use that uh, cryptid code key book that I all sent you, Ballyhoo listeners, you'll discover that it was actually Daryl F. Zanuck. Uh, in 
in a year just before, just on the cusp of him having the final fallout with Warner Brothers that he would have before he would go to run 20th Century Fox. But Daryl F. Zanuck was one of the best story men that Warner Brothers ever have and will ever have, ever. In fact, I argue that The Flash might have been better if Daryl F. Zanuck had written the synopsis for it. <laughs> um, uh, and you have a final screenplay by Catherine Scola, uh, which gives you a cool female influence into it. She also wrote the movies Female and Midnight Mary. This is around a period, too, before it was more difficult for female writers to necessarily get the same amount of jobs as a man. Uh, she would have a career up until 1949's night on tonight. She also co-wrote, uh, she also wrote Alexander's ragtime band, uh, along with Lamar Trody. Uh, and <clears throat> she has, uh, a, 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 a nice credit with the constant nymph. Uh, but the other writer is Gene Markey, who would go on to be the producer for a little film called The Hound of the Baskervilles, starring Basil Rathbone. What's that? <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but there was a guy named Sherlock Holmes, and once upon a time, he solved mysteries. And one time, it involved a hound at a, at a, at a manor. And I don't know if you know this, but it was pretty, pretty crazy. But I can't tell you anything about it. You got to watch it. You just got to watch it. Okay. Um, maybe one day I will. Yeah, maybe one day you will. And maybe one day uh, Benedict Cumberbatch will do an adaptation of it for the BBC. <laughs> like, that'll be the day. Um, uh, but uh, in, in our cast, we have a slew of people that are regulars to the Warner stock. Uh, you have Donald Cook coming back to the Ballyhoo auspices after his major, major work uh, as... James Cagney's brother in The Public Enemy. Um, you also have uh, Douglas Dumbrill uh, hanging around in this movie as Brody. You have Nat Pendleton, uh, uncredited as a big hulking guy with his shirt off in the beginning of this movie, who I still argue, Nat Pendleton, if he were if if he were around today, he would have played Thanos because you can't tell me that he doesn't look like Josh Brolin. Um, <clears throat> Edward Van Sloan is also here as one of the bank as the bank director, Jamison, um, and he's not credited in this film, but we all know what Van Helsing looks like. Um, <laughs> and um, we also have the lovely Teresa Harris returning in the role of Chico, who is the maid slash friend to Lily. Um, and we also have. Um, this really interesting newcomer. Um, let me see if I've got his name right here. Oh, uh, here it is. Marion Robert Moore. Oh, wait, no, hold on. I'm not Morrison anymore. It looks like he changed it to John Wayne? Wayne? No, Wayne, not Wayne. Oh, weird. Wayne. Never heard of him. You ever, ever heard of him? No, no. I wonder if he's going to make it something of himself. Yeah, maybe. Sounds like he would be a piece of shit in the seventies. I have no idea. <laughs> like, so, sounds like he's it sounds like he's a coward that didn't go to war. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, I, I, I vented. I'm done. <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm going to make fun of him later. Uh, yes, this is an early, early film for John Wayne. And I love how they listed in a, in Wikipedia's cast listing. They call him Jimmy McCoy, one of Lily's earliest bank conquests. And I'm like, <laughs> everybody else has a more defined name, but they had to really go like, no, he's just one of the he's one of the suckers. <laughs> Don't you understand? Um, and uh, this film, as all told, with its cast, with its production, 
is a response to another notorious pre-code film, which we could talk about on this show down the line, Red-Headed Woman from 1932 starring Gene Harlow, which uh, falls under a similar auspices. And I I found it described in doing research, Ryan, as what you would call a sex vulture story. (laughs) Uh, Using sex to prey upon people uh, in, uh, in the case of these films to get ahead, to advance. Um, and I will say that no matter v- which version you watch, this film is incredibly contemporary to today, like, or modern, like it's a very modern story. Uh, you could legitimately see this story being made today. <clears throat> the difference between then and now, I think, is that there would be a far more nuanced approach than what the script dictates Stanwick ought to do. Uh, and that's tricky, too, because there there's a key difference in these two different cuts of the film. Because in the final theatrical cut, there is a character named Adolf Craig, who is a cobbler that visits Barbara Stanwyck's father's establishment in the movie and inspires her to go out to New York and make a name for herself with the explicit uh, disclaimer of know the difference between right and wrong, but go out to the city and make your fortune. Whereas in the pre-release version, he not only tells Stanwyck to exploit herself and use men, but has Nietzsche as his backup source material for this idea. Well, that's that. I never go to funerals. A relic of barbarism. So, now what? Well, the future looks very bright. Just as I was leaving the cemetery, Ed Sipple made me a proposition. And last night, the manager of the starring guard of Burlesque House offered me a job in the chorus to do a strip act. A strip act? Yeah, show my shape. Well, that's a business in itself. Oh, I guess I ain't much of a businesswoman. What's going to become of you? It's up to you to decide. If you stay in this town, you are lost. Where would I go, Paris? I got four bucks. That's what makes me mad with you. You're a coward. I mean it. You let life defeat you. You don't fight back. What chance has a woman got? More chance than men. A woman, young, beautiful like you, can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master. Not a slave. Look, here. Nietzsche says, all life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Use men. Be strong. Defiant. Use men to get the things you want. Yeah. And normally, I'm not in favor of hearing Nietzsche's garbage. However, in the case of this pre-release version, I do think it adds something that the recut version does lack, which is a distinct character trait to explain many decisions that she makes emotionally. Um, But Mm. on the other hand... 
arguably, as you and I talked about a couple of days ago prior to this recording, there's a lot of instances where a lot of cuts that they make make it worse <laughs> than what it would have been if they had released it un, un, uncut. Oh, yeah. I think um, watching the two, I actually kind of prefer the uh, cut version mm. only because it gets rid of the bluntness mm -hmm. and it leaves a lot to you to decipher. Mm -hmm. But you know what they're talking about. I mean, it the, the whole film is about a woman who is being prostituted by her father at a speakeasy. Yes. And then then she finally just snaps and says, I ain't sleeping with this old fucker. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And that would have been great if Barbara Stanwyck had said that out loud. Like, I'm not sleeping you know, with this old fucker. <laughs> Carol Lombard would have said it. Um, that oh, oh, my dream movie. And Jack Benny <laughs> and Jack Benny's her sidekick in the movie. <laughs> that's, that's the movie um, I want. <laughs> so the, by them implying that she's using her body because she learns that she can get what she wants by sleeping around. Um, there, to me, there, there's a couple great scenes in this film that are longer in the pre-release version mm -hmm. that are cut down a little bit. And, and one of them is her affair she has with the old dude at her first job. Yes. Um, where in it, she's she doesn't want to just be, what's the word I'm looking for? She doesn't just want to be like a typist or I don't even know whether she wants to, she wants to work her way up the ladder to a more prominent position. Like exactly. Arguably, yeah. It, so she starts as just a, basically a secretary who types mm -hmm. and then she realizes the old fucker in who's her boss. If she seduces him and uses her sexuality to exploit him, mm -hmm. then what I really loved about this movie is she turns it on everybody. She yeah. turns it. Yes. Um, and she sets everybody up. And the one thing that Alfred Green does do in this film, because uh, I mentioned why I like stars earlier, but the one little thing that he does that I think is really clever is every time she has a new relationship with a new man, mm -hmm. he does an establishing shot of her going higher up on in the, um, the, in the bu building. Yeah. From like from type uh, from filing to mortgage. Yeah, yep. it just goes up the build, the climb up the building. And that's the miniature work that I was referring to early on. <clears throat> Arguably, it's not an expensive effect, but it is such an effective miniature shot. Like, it's yeah. it's beautiful. Like, you know, we talk about special effects. This is the only special effects talk we'll have in this episode. There is something beautiful still about model work that will easily, like, surpass any CGI model building today for me personally. I think also back to like Batman Begins where you have models of Wayne Manor and the city of Gotham that he utilized in Batman Begins specifically to establish the scope of Gotham. I like this in particular because it's so simple. It's just a building that you conceivably could have made with paper mache. And yet it is so effective in communicating her rise to power in either cut of the film. If anything, if yeah. it, it's, I'm glad that they didn't like get rid of it uh, for lack of maybe not looking as grand as something else. It's a beautiful, beautiful miniature. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing they really took out of the both the films is dialogue. Dia and dialogue, they changed the endings explicitly and... As I said before, the whole element of Nietzsche 
is completely removed from this movie almost entirely. <clears throat> I, I, I well, we'll talk a little bit more about the plot that you just described in a little bit more detail, and I'll and I'll talk about the 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 why this Nietzsche thing was removed, and uh, and it should be said up front. While we admire Barbara Stanwyck's power that she exerts in this movie, one thing I think we can be happy to recognize is that even as shitty as the world still is towards women in employment and women in society, thankfully this is not a tactic that women all over the world have to rely on to obtain power and respect and control of their own circumstances. Um, that That is the one thing about the movie is that it is very much like, it sort of posits as this is the only way she'll be able to to make power for herself. But what's- uh, I mean, I'll push back a little bit on that. The only reason is it also portrays uh, men in that instance as yes, that who is they true. are. As, and she's taking advantage of it because she's smarter than they are. That is very and, true, yeah. And so while, yes, that still exists, I think one of the reasons why I like this movie and why I felt that it was really ahead of its time mm-hmm. is it took what women were subjected to back then and today – and it turned it on its face, and it's basically saying, oh, you're going to treat me like a sex object? Well, guess what? I'll be a sex object. And you could <clears throat> you could make the argument that Stanwyck is the villain of this film. I think because, she's she's an anti-hero in a lot of respects, I would argue. Yeah, because, I mean, I respect the fuck out of her for what she did to the men. Uh-huh. But, but towards the end, where she starts realizing how it's affecting them, and she still continues to do it, mm-hmm. um, kind of... That's why I really like the character, though. I, I except for the very end. If, yeah, but, and actually, the very well, the very end and the differences between the two different cuts it changes her character drastically, and your impression, agreed. and your impression of the character. Um, I will say too, like, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a good point. I'm not like trying to. I'm not condemning it as like you know, like anti-feminist or anything. Because one, I'm a fucking man. What the fuck do I know? But number two, it's more that like I. I wanted to look at like right on the outset the idea of like okay well this the the concept of power and how it's obtained and or at least respect and control of one's destiny is not explicitly uh, resorting to only this in the world anymore. Thankfully there have been advancements made and films today do reflect that. But you made me think of something Ryan. <laughs> this no, uh, the movie <laughs> the movie the movie promising young women does for uh, for violence towards women what this movie does in terms of women us- utilizing their sexuality to gain control in a situation. In a lot of senses, Emerald, Fe- Emerald Fennel does similar things that Babyface does with Carrie Mulligan's mission in um, Promising Young Women. The difference is, is that she gets them to that point and then she fucking scares the shit out of them. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so like I, 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 it, but again, this was just a disclaimer, just to be like, you know, like we're not like I, I, I root for Stanwyck's character while also recognizing that, thankfully, storytelling matures to where you don't need to just rely on this story arc as a way to tell a female empowerment story. I think that's more what I was trying to communicate there. Um, and you're right; she is very admirable to watch even as you know that she is putting herself in compromising positions from a, from a uh, right and wrong standpoint, <clears throat> you 
relate to her trauma and how she overcomes it and how she seizes control of her destiny. And that that is something that I think Barbara Stanwyck was expert at communicating in any role she did. And also oh, yeah, for sure. And also it I think it gives it gives a chance for as many pre-code films would do at this time before and after Babyface. It's one of these instances where you get to see the dynamic because the dynamic is reversed, you start to understand what certain moments of dialogue, moments of acting, moments of blocking will indicate power in a scene. And I think it helps when you remove the archetype of, well, the man's always in power and the woman's in a different position. When you reverse it, you start to see how dialogue that's usually given to a man, given to a woman, you start to understand the power of words and how they affect people. Because like when she's pushing off the men that she's already thrown to the side at this point, it sounds no different than a man telling a woman that he's used used for purposes of sex to just go away so that I can get back to my normal life. You know what I'm saying? Like if somebody mm-hmm. has an affair. So like that that shows the power of words. And because of the changes that this film make, words become very important in regards to the changes. But when we open up on that film on this film in this Bowery, where as you said, she's been used by her father since the moment she was a young woman for prostitution for the purposes of selling the services of not just her, but the liquor that he's selling in his little speakeasy, more or less, or his above tenement bar. I don't know what this it it's definitely a speakeasy now, but what was it before? <laughs> like I don't know. Um I guess you could just open a bar in your fucking living room back then. I don't know what the laws were, but um, I mean, certainly in Prohibition, this is a speakeasy situation because he is talking to a politician that wants to get with Lily and basically going like, you're not going to shut me down. And he's like, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about your daughter. And then when he comes back in after Lily rejects the politician, he threatens to shut the place down. So we are firmly set in the contemporary speakeasy Prohibition era um, even though I believe 33 and 34 is around the time where Prohibition is about to be smacked away anyway. It's actually one of those films that doesn't really lay into Prohibition as heavily as, say, films that came two years before it. Um, but one of the key moments almost immediately when you see things being changed and being cut is, number one, there are certain things that just seem a little bit different in terms of the quality of the film. And that has to do more with the prints because the theatrical final version of this film on DVD is terribly preserved. It looks and sounds like garbage. The pre-release version is fully restored. And you can automatically tell the difference between a film that maybe nobody cared about as much except for film fans compared to this pre-release version that has probably gained more notoriety over the years. And... The additional factor is there is a key line change in this movie that removes a lot of the context without removing the full intent. A little tramp, yeah. yeah, I'm a tramp, and who's to blame? My father, a swell start you gave me. Ever since I was 14, what's it been? Nothing but men, dirty, rotten men, and you're lower than any of them. I'll hate you as long as I live. 
in the theatrical version, it cuts away to... Yeah, I'm a tramp, and who's to blame? My father, a swell start you gave me. Nothing but men, dirty, rotten men, and you're lower than any of them. I'll hate you as long as I live. It cuts immediately to nothing but men, dirty, rotten men. So you remove Ooh. her story, you remove her trauma that stemmed from childhood, and you've made a bad move in the editing room. <laughs> because if you watch that cut, it's terrible. <laughs> It's yeah. It moves from because she. This is the beauty of Barbara Stanwyck is she can actually elevate. She elevates her performance a little bit. She'll start off in a very glib, blunt manner, and then she starts to escalate to anger. And when you remove that line, the buildup suddenly takes a jump from maybe a four point five to suddenly nine, <laughs> and it's like this is abrupt. Um, and but thankfully, as she has told her father off her escape becomes easier because a fire breaks out at their bar <laughs> and <laughs> kills him. So it gives yeah, her he what yeah, it gives he her. It. Yeah, he does. He, he had it coming. Uh, the only way it would have been better is if the song he had it coming from Chicago was playing in the background <laughs> of the film. Um, and so it allows her and her coworker slash, I guess, live in made Chico played by Teresa Harris to escape. Another subversive act in this film comes from the fact of Chico as a character herself. Teresa Harris in this movie, it's it's a very different role than you'll see prominently in Golden Age Hollywood of a subservient black character. Chico yeah. is far more intellectual. She is far more savvy. She is not treated as inferior in Barbara Stanwyck's eyes. The closest you get is that she is technically her maid, but it's similar to the Jack Benny thing where it's like, I think that's more a cover <laughs> to, to really kind of just give her a best friend character. And in the case of Teresa Harris in this film, she when she delivers dialogue, Teresa Harris is such an eloquent actress she does a form of dialogue written down at one point where it says like, um, I, I knew you would make it or something like that. She, she seems to have disdain vocally and intentionally for the dialogue. And she makes it known in a way that you could get around in a, in a, in any censor situation at that time. So I find that one of the secret successes of this film is, how they utilize Teresa Harris's character as a supporting player. The problem is, is that the theatrical cut really, really dwindles down her performance um, and removes a very key sequence with her and how she interacts with Barbara Stanwyck. So they decide to head off to New York because Lily gets advice from Craig, the elderly philosopher in the bar, who's her only friend in the world. In the theatrical version... There is a, I don't know if you noticed this, Ryan, but did you notice that some of the ADR over over his shoulder looking at her seemed a little bit forced and maybe yeah. um, uh, recorded after the fact? That's because in the altered version, he says, A woman, young, beautiful like you are, could get anything she wants in the world. But there is a right and a wrong way. Remember, the price of the wrong way is too great. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Don't let people mislead you. 
You must be a master, not a slave. Be clean, be strong, defiant, and you will be a success. In the pre-release version, uh, the his enthusiasm for Nietzschean philosophy, to the point of giving her a copy of that book, uh, of, of Nietzsche's book, uh, the line actually goes, a woman young, beautiful like you can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master, not a slave. Look here. Nietzsche says, all life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more than, nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Use men. Be strong. Defiant. Use men to get things that you want. Now, I don't know if all of that is something you'd want to say to, say, your daughter, but, you know? Well... (laughs) I mean, uh, there's a lot in there of just like be strong, be defiant, uh, and uh, and and you know be your own person. But probably exploit yourself and use men to get what you want is not necessarily a modern lesson. However, though, in the case of this film and in the case of what he's explaining to her, especially when you consider it under the pretext of the 30s in America. What he's saying is very subversive and defiant against a cultural norm. And I argue that that pre-release version, despite the fact that it carries Nietzsche's name in it, is far more intense and clarifying to how the character behaves in the movie versus giving this band-aid of remember the price the wrong way of the wrong way, it's too great. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't lose yourself. I think that that cre- it makes her seem more villainous in the final theatrical version because she's willfully ignored a very clear dialogue cue from the from the from the actor. It's why it feels awkward to me. Yeah, I also think that's that some of the edits are bad, but I also think by removing some of the bluntness. Um, I think it adds to the film and it helps with the darkness in Stanwick's character. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I I I guess it maybe it's a matter of preference between us two. I feel like that first one is is better at being what we want a pre-code film to be than that final one because it's too blunt a label. It's like it's like how I feel sometimes about gangster films. I kind of enjoy the kitschiness of a prologue at the beginning of The Public Enemy going like, we don't endorse gangsterism, we don't ex- endorse gangster activities, blah, 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 um, covering our ass. But I don't need that in the movie, and if anything, if you removed it, it would make it an even more powerful statement towards uh, the the lesson of the film because you, as the audience, would need to suss out the morality of it for yourself. Um, it's why Scorsese doesn't have a prologue at the beginning of Goodfellas going like, all these people are jackasses. Don't follow this way of life, please. <laughs> it would make the movie less entertaining and therefore impactful if you did that. Um, so uh, that's just my personal preference. But regardless, too, from a filmmaking standpoint, the, the Band-Aid is so clear. And you can tell in the theatrical cut how they're switching from like the repeat of a shot to a shot that sort of matches up with where it's supposed to fade out it's very very strange yeah i'd have to 
watch it really closely again, but I could tell uh, reverse shots too. Yeah, like uh, they, you know, they flipped them. <laughs> it doesn't add up. It, it they, yeah. it's it's like somebody once told me, and uh, when I was in high school, my video production teacher told us about the line and do not cross it or flipping shots and how that doesn't work. And it's almost just like, okay, like these guys invented the art form and they still didn't realize this wouldn't work. <laughs> like I like, they're not the Wachowskis. Like they can't just do that for the sake of, Oh, we're telling the story of the matrix. So it doesn't fucking matter. This is a very straightforward human story between, uh, b- b- and a scene between a man and a woman talking. Um, but regardless of that, they hop a train to New York. Now, in the theatrical version, they get on the train. It pretty much goes dark, and we're in New York. In the pre-release version, uh, a train watchman uh, inspecting the cars stops them and is about to remove uh, them both from the car. But then Lily uses her charm to seduce the train watchman, and it is implied that she and... She uh, exploits her exploits his uh, sexual desires in that train car with um, I mean, you you've watched Family Guy like I have, Peter. It's, you know, that joke about panning away the camera um, to because we're going to have a gratuitous sex scene. Uh, They basically do that with a shot of a lamp and his watchman gloves being uh, tossed over towards the lamp as Chico is singing St. Louis blues out loud. And I think that it it's. From this, from the perspective of the theatrical cut, it, uh, I think it removes how she's adapting to her philosophy early on. I kind of think that that's important to understand that she's she's in this to win it. But it's fine; you can lose it, I guess. My bigger objection is that it removes Chico's accomplice status uh, as um, Lily's friend and fellow beneficiary of her schemes because she gets to live in a in in a sort of lavish lifestyle albeit as a as a maid more or less but she's kind of in the con with her it's pretty heavily implied kind of like that time i was a night watchman on a train (laughs) (laughs) cut to that scene from the pre-release version of baby face peter griffin was in this movie the whole time um (laughs) But I, I just think, yeah, it kind of unfortunately removes Teresa Harris's impact in that moment. I think it's very beautifully executed. But she arrives in New York, and that's when we start getting her going to this building uh, and saying, all right, here's my chance. I'm going to climb up this building, literally, and the cameraman's going to follow me up on my journey. <laughs> um, and uh, she makes her way up. Uh, she starts at the bottom. She tries to get a job, and she seduces uh, a Mr. Pratt, here at the office and um she 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 starts on her charm by saying like uh uh are there many pra- uh, uh are what part of the i think it's like more more what part of the south are you from mr pratt and then he tells her i think it's tuscaloosa or something like that and she says i have uh i i know a lot of pratts where i came from and I found a piece of the script that nobody um has been able to uncover i i went to the vaults and i dug it up the full line was actually, I knew a lot of Pratt's where I came from. They were all named Chris. And um, yeah, I I know. I just, I had to. The more I kept hearing Pratt, the more I'm like, he's fucking everywhere. Um, but she seduces Mr. Pratt, not Chris, uh, and murks her way up to filing. And then it's pretty much implied from the get-go. There's no scene in either cut that indicates another journey. It's already implied that she has seduced a Mr. Jimmy McCoy Jr. Uh, in filing. 
uh, because Jimmy McCoy Jr., played by John Wan, uh, is uh, already recommending this woman to her his boss. And like almost within the span of maybe two minutes, she climbs the ladder yet again by seducing his boss. And then consequently, we start seeing how she pushes the people she's already conquered to the side because Jimmy comes up and says, say, baby face, want to come to the theater with me tonight? And that's when he turned to the camera and said, see, I said the title of the movie because that's called baby face. Ha, 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 ha. And that's when I threw my, my remote at John Wayne's face and walked into the other room. Um, uh, but that's when we start to see her shoving people to the side. She's all right. I've, I've already conquered you. I'm done. I'm on to the next sucker. Um, and this climb up the ladder becomes escalated and escalated and escalated. Um, from from Jimmy's boss, she seduces Ned Stevens, played by Donald Cook. And Ned Ned Stevens has a fiancé, and she not only suckers in Donald Cook's Ned Stevens, but then she frames him, ostensibly, for her... I love that scene for where the she fiance. cries to, his, yeah, to, the, to the boss... Yes. So that's, Where she's like, I never done nothing like this. Yeah. He goes like, what is it? Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. So, like, for to, to fill in a quick gap, the uh, J- uh, Ned Stevens' boss, the vice president of the bank, Mr. Carter, J.P. Carter, uh, is the father of that fiance. So he tries to kind of, you know, iron it all out because Ned won't fire Lily because he's madly in love with Lily. Everybody is in love with Lily. Like, she... She is written as this magical woman that every single man on earth wants, uh, which is the only fantastical element of this film. Because I know it is Barbara Stanwyck, and I know that everybody would be in love with Barbara Stanwyck, but it's it, but it's taken to a magical ma- magical realism degree. <laughs> um, and uh, nevertheless, J.P. Carter is approached by Lily. Uh, well, no, Lily goes up uh, is brought up by Carter. To basically uh, say that she needs to be let go, and she puts on this whole show about how she's she's new in the city, she doesn't know anybody, and Ned didn't say that he had a fiance. And you're right, it is masterful. In fact, I might play a little bit of that for the audience right now here in the edit. I won't waste words with you. This is a very serious matter. Of course, you realize that Mr. Stevens is engaged to my daughter. Engaged. I had no idea. Oh, it can't be true. You mean you didn't know he was to be married? Oh, no. He told me I was the only one. My daughter is heartbroken. But what about me? You're not asking me to give him up, are you? Oh, how could I? Did he mean so much to you? Everything in the world. Was he your first sweetheart? This is very distressing. I'm sure you must see how impossible it would be for you to remain at the bank. But what will I do? Have you no family in New York? No, I'm all alone here. I haven't any friends and I haven't any money. I shall have to think this over.
you tell me where you live? My telephone number is Skylar, 32215. That scene is, I love how when he says, what, what do, what's your address? And she goes, my number is this. And she kind of says it with a little bit more urgency. And mm-hmm. it's a very nice little line delivery. Now, then she starts milling around with J.P. Carter, um, which means that she's pushing off Ned. But Ned has become obsessed to the point of, if you're not with me, I'll kill myself. (laughs) Um, Which, when he finally bursts into into where Lily is staying with J.P. and sees J.P. Carter, he shoots J.P. and then shoots himself. Um, Which is incredibly brutal without showing a damn thing. Like all you hear is the why you, and then we cut away to Lily and all we need to hear is two loud gunshots and one quick shot of Ned on the ground dead. And it's actually very beautifully blocked to where you're not lingering on it too much. In fact, it's almost like Lily is covering it up from the audience the way she doesn't even want to look at it herself. Like the movie is beautifully blocked too that's another thing to bring up the scene where she is uh having sex with the guy before stevens and stevens comes in to confront her about it and fire her there's a shot where you see her in the mirror looking at him and then she walks towards him and leaves the mirror and becomes real it's such a i love when you can play with mirrors in a shot and that is beautifully executed um but so now jp and ned are dead so Who's brought in to run this bank but this uh, upstart uh, heir to the bank, Mr. Cortland Trenholm, played by George Brent. Um, And Lily, continuing her schemes, essentially, has landed upon, okay, I'm going to sell my story to the papers for $15,000. And then, assumedly, she's just going to carry on her routine to maybe another business maybe change her name, who knows. But Cortland sets her in a trap with her own words by saying like, all right, well, all you want is a clean start and to to get away and change your name? Well, we've got an office in Paris. So instead of the nasty habit of taking money, which you clearly said you don't want to take, we'll just give you a job in Paris. And then Lily goes like, well played, clerk. (laughs) (laughs) With uh, With her demeanor. So she gets sent to Paris, Cortland uh, goes to the Paris offices to visit and he starts to fall for Lily. Assuming I'm from what I read the film to be is that he, he gets, he is satisfied by seeing, seeing Lily actually working the job and not like having just taken the, taken the job for a little bit and then left. And so, and she got promoted too. Yes, without with seemingly without using her her feminine wiles. So therefore, he sees this. She sees the power that she possesses, and she she starts to kind of flirt with him and charm him. But you can tell that there's a difference because it's arguable that the sight of two dead people has definitely reshifted how she wants to approach this going forward. (laughs) Um, because even looking at that, I think she's like, okay, maybe this went a little too far. I don't know. Um, but uh, but she becomes enamored by Cortland as well, but she's trying to put up a huge wall with him. Um, which finally gets let go when she agrees to be with him 
And even as she is visibly expressing hesitancy for how she's going to handle things going forward or doesn't want to sucker Cortland in, she does sucker him in. And when they get married and they are sitting in a New York apartment, she is lavishly looking through a case of jewelry and and foreign money and stocks. And she even tells Chico, like, see, Chico, it's half a million dollars. Soon I'm going to have the other half. But Cortland is indicted when the bank fails and he is uh, pointed at as the cause of it. And so he bailed himself out and now needs to raise a million. And Lily has this amazing moment where she's like, I can't. I've worked too hard to get what I've got. I'm not giving it up. And she goes to leave with Chico on a boat back to Paris. And that's when she starts, we start seeing the doubt in her. And there's, there's, there's a difference between the two different cuts in this. In the theatrical cut, when she's looking at the record player that's playing and, and thinking about people she's harmed, in the theatrical cut, it only shows Cortland. In the pre-release cut, it shows everybody that she has wronged and lands on Cortland. And when it lands on Cortland, I found this line to be very powerful as it was said. He goes, I know you've known men before me, probably more than one, but I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. I love you, and someday I'm going to make you love me. And I feel like her character journey, realizing that the method in which she's used to obtain power is not strictly the best way. If we're going by moral standards and what the code wants, I feel like removing the Nietzschean philosophy and putting Band-Aids on at the beginning sort of removes the, the power of that revelation as a whole. I think it partially works. I don't think it completely works because I think it works better from what the code would want by showing all the people that she's wronged. And instead, the pre-release version or the the final version just shows Cortland, and it's like, well, if you if the code wants you to learn a lesson and to have her learn a lesson and maybe feel punished, it would make more sense to show everybody. It's the it's I I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I I feel like that kind of removes something from the process. I yeah you know I my issue with the ending and the theatrical or the, yeah, I guess theatrical release, mm -hmm. is I don't like her perf professing her love and saying, oh, you're right, here's the money, they don't matter to me anymore, And because Cortland's a goober. Mm. And, <laughs> and I would rather, I mean, if I was making this film, and I know they at this time they, they're basically forced to have a happy ending, you know, with the, basically the monologue by the bank, board of trustees saying oh she's learned her lesson well um, that was definitely tacked on because the end of the pre-release version is so she goes she decides i love Cortland. i'm going back to him she goes back to the apartment he's not there she goes to the office it's revealed that he has tried to commit suicide she does the whole as you were saying the professing i love you Cortland. i love you um and then she gets into an ambulance and it's revealed that 
he's going to be okay. And her case full of jewels and yeah. diamonds yeah. Boo. Fa- falls over. Boo. And she's like, it doesn't matter now. And his eyes open. And that's when the movie ends. The theatrical yeah. cut, the theatrical cut adds that board meeting where I think what the code was wanting was for them to not remain rich and instead, uh, revert to a poverty stricken lifestyle because <laughs> they were going like, Oh, he's working a steel mill now an honest job. And they're making it, they're make they're making through their happiness one day at a time, blah, blah, blah. And then the movie ends. I think that that ending's worse than the pre-release version. If we're going to have the bad, happy ending anyway, I like the way that it ends in the pre-release version, as opposed to this tacked on bank manager nonsense. Oh yeah, no, I agree. And I, <laughs> if it was up to me, like I would have had Cortland die and her leave with all the money. Yes, and... that would be the more honest ending. <laughs> I yeah. think. I, I and I'm not saying that I want every ending to be sad and morose, but I want, like you said, I want the honest ending because mm-hmm. um, she wouldn't have changed because she was still wronged by Cortland and by all these men who took advantage of her. Yes, agreed. Um, yes, and, and, and when you know. JP and uh, gets murdered. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even have remorse for that because she got exactly what she wanted. Right. So for her to have this 180 that she loves Cortland, I was like, man, yeah. I mean, it's still it's still a great movie. It'll probably end up on my um, end of year glee of thirty three. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think well here so close. I, I was gonna say this. Like I think that. I think the way I looked at this film the whole way through, having immersed myself in different elements of Golden Age Hollywood through the years, I already knew what the ending would have to do. So I had to remove my frustration with that because there's a similar thing. Our friends on All the Best Lines, Adam and Smokey, did Nightmare Alley not too long ago, the original version from 1947 with Jerome Power. And there was a discussion about what the code does to the ending of that movie and what the code does to the end of that movie is dishonest to the material. The The remake may not be perfect that Guillermo del Toro did, but that ending is incredibly honest to the material compared to the original version. Well, you um, know why I love the remake of Nightmare Alley? Because Kate Blanchett is freaking amazing. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was Willem Dafoe because that was Dafoe December, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, he's got oh am I? <laughs> I'll be in both big movies from Disney. <laughs> One of them will get more screens than the other because their life is unfair. <laughs> um, nah, I'm, I'm glad Spider-Man had the attention that it did, but come on. Put, no, Spider-Man's me, the best movie but, from that year. But you got to give Nightmare Alley a little bit more than just one screen per theater. It's got, <laughs> it's got Bradley Cooper in it for fuck's sake. He's not a nobody. Um, and, and also Guillermo just won an Oscar. This was his follow-up. Um, anywho, I'll, I'll put that to the side, but so knowing that the movie had to have a, a happy resolution by the end, you can't end, end in moral ambiguity or any ambiguity of any hey, kind. Hey, I would have been happy if it ended with her seeing him on the ground and she's like, yeah, okay. And she just leaves. And then mm. the police and ambulance show up and then he wakes up in the ambulance and it ends there. I just didn't want her to. Um, do the I love you, you know, I love you thing. The yeah. I love you. And I get it. I mean, uh, it's not as jarring as, I don't know if you've seen 40 Guns, but she has an ending like that in 40 Guns, too. Mm. And it's just, 
Like, I don't. No. I, no, I've never seen Forty Guns before. That's one that's on my list. She's great in she's the. Great in it. She she there's a, she's great in the theories, but that doesn't have a uh uh that has a more correct ending. I'll I'll put it that way. I don't want to spoil the theories for you, but like in the grand schemes of doing justice to a story filled with bad people, it's pretty on the nose good. This one, I think, yeah, in order for her to not lose her power, we'd need to be honest with that material and we'd need to be removing that whole I love you, I love you thing. It's anything I would want. I would want footage of her looking confused and compromised rather than having it spoken out loud. Like, I'd rather make the determination for myself if I had to alter this in any way. So like you said, if it just ended on her looking at it and then cutting to the ambulance and her in the ambulance with him, maybe, without any lines, maybe that would communicate far more or, like, do something. But knowing that she has to learn a lesson at the end and it has to go down that way and that her lesson has to be, well, okay, I wronged all these men technically, so uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to him and 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 back up my man. Uh, the pre-release version does more for the overall movie than the tacked-on ending of like, oh, they're back in, they're back in, um, in Poorland, living near a steel mill in Pittsburgh and making their way, like. That one was the very was the biggest God bless America ending that could exist. Like it was very very dumb, and uh, but th- that's when we get to the end of it. Uh, in terms of the cuts that this film makes, um, th- as you said, the theatrical version works, but I feel like. From from both the perspective of how I feel the material should be laid out, which is for me, if you want her power to feel more relatable and confident, it all comes down to that Craig uh, monologue about f- embracing your destiny and 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 use men and like and like and find your power. Like that works more for me than like go to the city and make good choices, but go to the city and make your fortune there. Like it's it I feel like it allows me to relate more to Lily and her struggle in the pre-release cut than it does in the theatrical cut. But I don't think either cut removes um her power in any respect. I think it just reframes it to a certain extent. Would that does that make yeah. sense? Like one yeah. feels more in, one feels more subversive than the other not just because of what's shown but what's implied and i think that th- like for context in the theatrical cut there's a point where she gets a book sent to her, to her in the mail and there's a little note in it saying and the note says like from their letters it i've i've read it's gathered that you haven't been learning heeding my warnings at all and it's like no this 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 doesn't work because then she's not I, I this this doesn't work because it's like another like moral band aid. Like you can tell it's a patch, and the problem with the theatrical cut I have is that it's a series of patches. Even though it, in many instances, when she's climbing the ladder, things feel far more sinister in some respect. I think that the moral patches like make the film feel uneven. <laughs> um, uh, now that being said, though, this original pre-release version. Um, was submitted 
uh, for approval at the Hayes office. Uh, at this time, the notorious Joseph Breen was at this office. Um, and this is when the shit starts to hit the fan a little bit. So this film is shot and finished in 18 days. Again, I want to reiterate, Ryan, at a budget of $187,000. According to the AFI's website, the MPAA and Production Code Administration records indicate that the film met with censorship problems just shortly after its initial release. The Hayes office recommended that the picture be pulled from theaters for its violations of the production code. So I went up and searched up some Variety articles of this, and we have as far back as April 17th coverage of the problems this film was facing. Now, keep in mind that the full wide distribution of this film was July 1st, 1933. We first have a report from April 17th, 1933 um, that says, Bad Girl Film Cycle Earns Frown of Haze. Hayes office is getting a flock of heavy squawks from church and women's organizations on account of a new cycle of bad girl pictures now being marketed and readied for release. Pictures are Babyface, starring Barbara Stanwyck, Warner Production, Bondage, Fox, No Bed of Roses, Radio, or RKO, starring Constance Bennett, Hold Your Man, Metro, Lady of the Night, starring Loretta Young uh, for Metro, both scheduled for, uh, for production. Other studios have figured on getting out material along these lines, with Hayes here trying to stop if, stop if possible anything that has stories based on the idea of prostitutes. So right away, there's language in that article where it's indicated that there's this overall label of prostitution for what Lily's doing. And when we've discussed about Lily earning her power— I don't think you can just blindly apply the label of prostitute. Like that's, no, that's a very, no, I don't think, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, that's, that's very misogynist right there. I mean, her, her father is the pimp. And once she's, he blows up in the shed. I mean, mm-hmm. no, more pro, no more prostitution happening. She's, she's working for herself. She's making her own decisions. Exactly. She has, she has agency. That thing, that thing that uh, James says Katniss Everdeen doesn't have. She has agency. Um, <laughs> shout out to James, who never listens to this show. <laughs> um, you need to help me get him on for Forbidden Planet. It's It's been far too long, and I'm tired of waiting for him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, um, and and then a couple, like, a couple days later in the news cycle, there's another little blurb where, anticipating sensor trouble, Warner's home office has sent back Babyface for retakes. Studio is expected to tone down the spots where the heroine gives up too easily. And I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> that, that, mm. that line makes no fucking sense. Um, so this is where we get to... The interesting part of this. Remember when I said that this film cost $187,000, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Okay. On the same day of that little blurb and blip, this little piece here called Hayes Oaks 2 um, actually mentions a film that you've also uh, watched not too long ago. Um, the by, the subline is Temple Drake, Finally Jake, WB's Baby-Faced, also Visaid. Um, Paramount's Temple Drake, derived from the banned book Sanctuary by William Faulkner, finally gets a smile from Will Hayes after having been sent back from New York three different times to get the subject in line with the new deal, new deal idea in the picture. In fourth version, it finally managed to get itself clean enough to be given a visa. Warner Insiders 
figure it has to cost at least $75,000 to $125,000 to remodel Babyface after it was sent back from the New York office with instructions to change it to conform to stricter Hayes code. So let's stop there. There's the, the final budget is still listed at $187,000 when you look this up online. I do not doubt the potential rise in that figure. That is near the production budget of the film itself to reshape and reform this movie. Now, mm. that is an indicator to me of why ultimately producers would end up embracing the production code rather than fighting it because of how yeah. much it might cost to fully change and re-edit these films. Because it's not just taking the thing. You can't just remove a line. Because one, AI didn't exist to do everything for us. But number two, you actually may need to go in for reshoots. In fact, that little patch with Craig, that requires somebody to come into a studio and do ADR that wasn't there before. It requires an editor being paid to come up with solutions and probably not going to come with it on the same day taking time to go through the footage and find the loop that you're going to apply to it. Uh, so that's a lot of work. And people, despite the financial issues that everybody was facing during the Depression, Hollywood had a lot of issues, but it was still paying its employees. And that brings up a tidy sum during a Depression. So it and can, I mean, honestly, the return wouldn't be worth it. Exactly. Especially when you consider that the final box office figures as listed were $452,000. It's not an amazing return on your investment. It's fine. It does fine. But if we're going off of what's a hit, uh, especially by today's strange mixed up standards, uh, it's, it's, it's a moderate success. From what I looked at in the box office returns of the final product, it ended up doing very well in uh, very well, but like it also had a lot of pushback from the cities you'd expect it to do well in. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the moral pushback that was occurring as the New Deal was starting to kick in and the financial situation of America starts to turn around. And keep in mind, America had been inundated by a slew of violence thanks to the rise in uh, gangsterism during Prohibition. I think people were kind of tired of vice in society and that the yeah. New Deal gives them a little bit more optimism and hope and therefore that they they feel like like the world can can be as clean as we see it i don't know like that sounds wrong coming out of my mouth but like that's the only way i guess i can surmise it um but i do want to pull back to the april 25th again for a overall article uh called hayes rips into producers with ultimatum sex perversion is out this is from april 24th Sex perversion is out of pictures and any studios making those dirt loaded films will have them dumped back in their laps. According to a new address by Will Hayes made to some producers, uh, uh, production and writing executives at a two hour session last Thursday night on the 20th. Hayes throughout his talk acted as though he meant what he said. He ripped into the gang in no uncertain way, told them that they have to abide by the spirit of various codes on clean entertainment his organization had prepared. They were told that he was getting tired of squaring dirt and prosti uh, prosty pictures, prosty prostitution, uh, said that he knew 
where uh, there, there were seven or eight of this type in preparation and that the studio had better scrap the raw ones now instead of taking chance of losing their entire investment by having the picture shipped back from New York as un- undesirable. He told them that Babyface had been shipped back to Warner's for remake and others would get the same medicine if they made pictures of this type. So Hayes uses Babyface as leverage to other people saying this will happen to you if you do not fall in line. And the article goes on in fashion to describe the kind of changing tide. There's a quote from Hayes within this. This is what he says. If you Hollywood producers make a picture that violates the code, we will send it back to you to change. If you do not change it, I shall go over your heads to your New York executives, and if they fail to satisfy us, we shall go to your bankers. If they do not see our point and order the necessary cleaning up, I shall carry my complaint to the American public through newspapers, telling by name the company that persists in dealing in dirt." Now, I find this very, very strange because this is 1933. You instilled your code in 1927. It seems like up to now, you've been fine with dealing with this. But uh, I think that that would be easy to understand when you're being paid $100,000 a year to serve as the president of the MPPDA by the studio system. Yeah, it's uh, he let it go. It's for, really two phase. He let it I go. Mean, for, yeah, he let it go for that long until Breen comes in, and then the moral panic starts setting in in the early '30s, and then he starts reversing course. And it's like you up to now were willing to take a hundred grand a year, which he would continue to do for twenty five years, uh, within his time. In his time since starting in 1922, up until he left 25 years later, he was still being paid $100,000 a year. Now, when we call it the code, we usually call it the Hayes Code because he started it. Hayes was was up until 1933 used as a patsy. And Joseph Breen is the real villain of the code, of the production code, because he's the one who had an even higher sense of moral authority, especially when it came into the Catholicism element of things and utilizing the Catholic Legion of Decency as leverage that helped seal a final death nail for a lot of producers where they had to concede to the code on the strictest terms imaginable. Uh, So I just, I, I, I want to know how we, in terms of how we look at Hollywood today and what lessons do we take away from this? This is one thing I think we can both agree upon is that you've talked about this before, but there is an element of hypocrisy when it comes to art and commerce with Hollywood that still exists. It's a persistent conundrum that we have to deal with, but you do see a lot of delayed reaction uh, when it comes to a moral panic. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Um, Well, it has to outrage somebody and then someone has to panic and say, well, I'm outraged too. And you you have films now. I, the one thing that I will say that the streaming and uh, other avenues of releasing films has really helped. A, a film like Terrifier 2, you know, made $15 million with no rating, no cuts. Yeah. And I think now people are getting wise to it. Because even when you went to the like the 90s and the 80s with the MPPA, Mm-hmm. And they were they're being asses. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and Kevin Smith talks about it all the time. He's like, I don't even know what I'm cutting. You know, and Friday the 13th, they'd make them cut, you know, like two seconds of blood. Like that really matters. Yes. And, and the moral high ground that Hayes took, he's a hypocrite because he's telling them to do it this one way. But I always liked too, and I felt the same way about music and films at this time. They would sneak ways around it, which I thought were way more clever and way more scandalous mm-hmm. than, than you know, yeah, it has to be the certain way, and they would do it. And I, I remember watching some films. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, unfortunately, but you know, from the 30s and 40s, and you go, wow, how did they get away with this? Because mm-hmm. to me, it seems very obvious. Right. But, you could make an argument for a lot of Marx Brothers movies, even beyond Duck Soup, that get away with oh, a lot of shit sure. they shouldn't get away with. <laughs> um, uh, for sure. Bob Hope film. Like, there's a lot of comedies that tend to... Lubitsch. Lubitsch is a great example. How often does Lubitsch circumvent those censors in films like Nanachka, Shop Around the Corner, and To Be or Not To Be? Like those oh, are yeah. those are steamy films in their own way. Well, shop around the corner less so. That more Ninochka and uh, to be or not to be. Those are examples of films he got away with. And in the same year of 1933, he made a film called Design for Living, a film that is expressly about a menage a trois. So, like yeah, the, which is a <laughs> which is a brilliant film, and they don't even hide it. Yo, no, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually shocked. I'm sorry. I rewatched that on the Criterion Collection, and I was just like, "There is how in the world did William did was Will Hayes just swimming in his pool with the hundred grand that he had that year and not giving a shit?" I like to think that he got caught under the spell of Miriam Hopkins and just was like, "Wow, you know what? fuck it." That's true. I actually have a recording here of Will Hayes talking about. That movie, here it is. He's like, I really like Miriam Hopkins, and that makes everything far better. Um, uh, now, in terms of, you brought up a good point that we should address here. Now, the by the time the code is instilled in April of 1934, Hollywood now has to adhere to a new set of rules. Now, as it pertains to Babyface, my personal feeling is that because of the arbitrary moralistic attempt at cutting the film, which consequently also comes up as misogynist, I I feel that as strong as the film is in its theatrical cut, I feel like Hayes and the office are removing added elements of context to Lily's story, such as the additional line when confronting her father that provide Lily with the power that she needs in this story. I think that it's small things. Like sometimes small little cuts in a movie or pieces of dialogue really do affect the overall impression. And I do feel that as strong as the theatrical cut can be, I do feel like something is missing from it. It has nothing to do with how often they cut away from... The, like how long the the elements of seduction are or you know on down to like the bluntness of language when mm. you remove it there is an element of it becomes more dirty but i also think you lose agency in the process and as i was talking about with teresa harris my feeling is that's another code attempt to pull back on an actress because of their race and mm. You might, somebody might think, well, no, the code had nothing to do with racism. Well, there are 
individualized state censor boards falling within many lines of the code that are in the South that would expressly, expressly censor films based on race and race interactions between white people and black people. The And, and I know this because somehow Jack Benny and Eddie Rochester Anderson got around them because they're so damn amazing at their job. Um, you know, and there's no world where any of the films he and uh, Benny and Rochester made together would have gotten past if they were not great at hiding the actual relationship that those two have in their comedy act, which is Rochester is a guy who is who is set up to knock down a white guy, his employer, at any given turn because of the way Jack is as a character. And so, like, I feel that Teresa Harris's trim down in this movie speaks to the racism that could be found in the code as well. So it's not even just misogyny. It's also racism that the code would would imply and push forward some twisted form of American values that, in all honesty, don't really exist. And thankfully, this production code started to lose its teeth in the 50s um, with arguably Alfred Hitchcock finally delivering an ultimate death blow in the overall sense by the, the movie psycho with, which not only contains that very brutal shower sequence, but also showing a toilet on screen. It took a toilet on screen to kill the code is, is my, is my, my opinion. (laughs) I think America as a whole, um, is a good place. And, um, wants to have a moral high ground, but we also don't like to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and I, I, you know, this about me, I don't believe in censorship at all. Right. I think, um, I think when it's age appropriate, I don't think you should not see anything and right. you yeah. should be the one who censors yourself and America, whether it's the Hayes code or, the comic code authority because the seduction of the innocent is going to happen really soon. Too. Oh, oh, you mean the seduction of the innocent, um, written written by a complete and utter moron? Yeah, I remember him. <laughs> yeah, so there's eventually gets to a point whether it's with comic books, whether it's with movies, or you know the music industry went through it, video games went through it, where you just get to a point where you're like, you know what, fuck you, I don't need you to tell me that, um, you know, I can't listen to nwa or i can't uh play resident evil or i can't watch dawn of the dead or south you park. Know, what, I, what's the most modern or, example south park yeah you you can't tell me this stuff and eventually it gets to a point where now the the mpaa just says this movie is rated r because there's you know strong language nudity and yada 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 they've kind of gone away from heavily forcing edits to Mm -hmm. just now making people more informed Mm -hmm. which i think as a parent myself i can look at something and know like i don't have to see like i'm not shocked if i buy fucking resident evil and i put it on like 
oh my word, there's zombies <laughs> and brains in this. Oh my like, God. I, I'm sorry. I just realized I would love for you to do a Twitch stream where you play that game going, oh my goodness, there's these zombies in there. They're buying people's heads off. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, there, you, you should know. It's, I mean, even um, <laughs> there's a movie in 1933 that I don't know if you've seen yet, so I won't spoil the end. It's Eagle and the Hawk. It's one of my, my most favorite Cary Grant movies mm-hmm. and they have the happy ending that is also a really depressing ending and there's ways to get around it and I I, I think people just get sick of being told what they can and can't do mm-hmm. and the Hays Code becomes archaic and unimportant I, I agree with you I also think that the streaming era I know that we've talked about the streaming era and how there are some detriments to the way it's currently functioning. But the streaming era, I think, really has made the MPAA pointless. Yeah, it's just like the Comic Code Authority. It doesn't even exist anymore because it's stupid. Yeah. You know, you used to not be able to have vampires in your books. Who cares? Like, do I really need to be told that a vampire is not real? Wait a minute. You know what I mean? Wait a minute. Ryan, now hear me out. Just Stanley, hear me out. We can't use a vampire, but what if he's a living vampire? What if that? <laughs> yeah. What if he was? What if he was fighting a guy who was named after a sword, blade? <laughs> and that's what I mean. They they literally got around mm-hmm. vampires by calling Morbius the living vampire. Mm-hmm. And then when no one <laughs> batted an eye, then they did the Tomb of Dracula. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's it's just stupid, and people know it's stupid. And this moral high ground that people think they have is ridiculous because, yes, back in the 1930s, women were having sex when they weren't married. <gasps> so were men. What? I'm going to I'm going to break this news story to everybody. Wait, 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 Ryan, 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 Ryan. Were, were men and were men having sex with men and women having sex with women? Yes. <laughs> oh, 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 what? No, 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 no. Oh. And, and, and I laugh when people point to, you know, there's a bigger percentage of the population that identifies as gay, lesbian, mm-hmm. trans. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, because they're not being fucking killed because of who they love. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> has nothing to do with, oh, because, you know, now a freaking Care Bear or a My Little Pony is gay on TV or the latest Pixar movie has a gay couple. No, it's just you guys still persecute against them, mm-hmm. but they're allowed to be who they are. And back then, guess what? There was gay people. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> they just were closeted the whole time about Rock Hudson because Oh yeah. You guys were you guys are fucking assholes. Yeah. So but the only um, one who wasn't uh, closeted was me, James Whale. I didn't need to hide a damn thing. I don't and he give did, a shit. And, <laughs> and people like that, I respect the fuck out of. Oh, so, yeah. He, he and, I don't know how. I, I, well, actually, there is a reason. I think we kind of talked about it in The Invisible Man. Correct me if I'm wrong. His, his situation is different because he, Part of it was he was making such successful films that the studio themselves were not questioning anything. But then the moment he stopped making hits for them, you know, he he slowly finds himself out of work um, or not desired by Universal after it changes hands. But like if he had continued making hit after hit after hit up into the 50s and not gotten to the point of suicide, I don't think anybody would have questioned it because George Cukor was never really questioned for his sexuality either. No. <laughs> and, 
because they don't need to be. It doesn't affect their art. And that's, you know, I, it just, it really drives me crazy um, because you can't help who you love. You can't <laughs> decide that this is the lifestyle for you. Yeah. And, and these people that have these moral high, you know, they're better than you. Mm-hmm. They're no better. They get freaky and they probably have butt sex too. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. That's jo- just, there's my rant for the day. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to change Joseph Breen's tombstone to Joseph Breen, born here, died here, probably had butt sex too. <laughs> to yeah, the exactly. Ultimate, the ultimate fuck you. And you brought up a very good point about when when it's age appropriate and you're aware of like you yourself are aware of what you are showing your child or a friend or not showing them that's your personal decision it's your personal comfort one of the most consistent things we talk about on this show because we've talked about difficult things is that watch this in your comfort zone if anything you are listening to makes you uncomfortable do not watch it it may not be for you like with showboat i'm not going to tell somebody they need to watch showboat when I know that there's problems with that movie in terms of how it relates to the African-American experience, you know, like if somebody's not comfortable with how Paul Robeson and Hattie McDaniel are being portrayed, I would totally get if they don't want to watch it, you know? And and I think, but, and added to that Babyface, as we talked about deals with elements of abuse at the very beginning of the movie and a history of abuse. If somebody who's been through that doesn't want to experience that in a movie, I do not blame you for not wanting to watch this movie. It is very, very blunt about it. Well, in the pre-release version, at the very least. In the theatrical version, it's made very vague and broad. And something that I find interesting about that whole element of choice is that the code basically policed cinema at large from 1934 up until its final dissemination and the formation of the MPAA under Jack Valenti. Um, a figure who, despite that he got the code ab- uh, fully abolished and set up the rating system, is no innocent man in this matter because he's responsible for forming an organization that became just as arbitrary and stupid in its time and existence. Um, but this overall policing of authority is is detrimental to telling braver and bolder stories. And yet, there is something positive that came out of the code which you have been talking about and expounding upon when it comes to the theatrical cut of this film. When you are forced to adhere to the code, in terms of Babyface's theatrical cut, arguably it is more or less... um, uh, it, It has a lot of its power removed from imagery on down to ideas, and we talked about how it looks clunky on a physical standpoint. In terms of its editing and whatnot, it's a little clunky the way they're trying to patch things up. The code, once the code is instilled, they start working at with with uh, writers and directors on a more forced basis from the script stage on. Uh, we talked about in Island of Lost Souls, they were basically having to get a form of approval with Island of Lost Souls from the office, but it still ran into problems because the very idea of Island of Dr. Moreau itself was entirely against the code. But in a pre-code era, they were able to move around it because of, again, there was that inherent hypocrisy within both the studio and Will Hayes. Post-code, you couldn't make Island of Lost Souls. 
But any film that was going to be made going forward, you would have to get approval from the censors. You would have to run through the process with them and then also have your film edited after the fact, depending on what natural elements a director or the actors themselves brought to the product. It did, however, force creatives to embrace subtler forms of implication. Arguably, Ernst Lubitsch benefits a lot from the code because he is able to push his innuendo into an even more explicit form while not saying anything and circumventing the code. I would argue that his later work is far more subversive than his pre-code work because of the way he has to maneuver around it and watching a genius at work. Um, or in the Maltese Falcon, there's a lot of implication about Mary Astor's character that they have to kind of work around, added to the fact that Joel Cairo, played by Peter Lorre, is explicitly gay in that novel. And yet they, it forced John Huston to work with Peter Lorre on creating an eccentric performance out of Lori that is true to the homosexual trait of Joel Cairo, but never explicitly says it. They are very, very clever to pull back exactly at the right moment. Or Casablanca. How in the world would you ever have Bogart and Ingrid Bergman running away together when she is clearly made married to Paul Henreid? That was an original considered ending for the film. But production code probably wouldn't have allowed that kind of adultery to be seen through to the end without making P Paul Henry a complete and utter asshole. So instead, you have, you're getting on that plane, sweetheart, and, you know, go up in there and then walk off with Claude Rains into the, into the foggy moonlight. Th those are beautiful moments that come out of the necessity to adhere to this bullshit code. It's, should it have existed? No. But there are instances where it made a lot of classic films work out exactly the way they needed to because we have no choice. <laughs> it's so weird that like there's some magic that came out of this bullshit. But I do think that like one of the big lessons we take away from Babyface as a film, I alluded to Promising Young Women earlier, but I, I think that you see this sort of film in particular in terms of how you portray any film surrounding corporate culture or business culture, you definitely see a lot more powerful women in positions of power, whether they utilize Barbara Stanwyck's form of, of ladder climbing or not. I think that that element of power in the business world with a woman is definitely something that Babyface helps to innovate. Um, and I think it allows for more nuanced stories to exist down the line because Babyface is very explicit. It's not, there's very little like in between. It's very, it's, it has a very black and white feel about it and not just because it's a black and white movie. Um, and uh, I would also argue that her attitude, Barbara Stanwyck's overall attitude in a lot of her pre-code work and even in films like Double Indemnity allow uh, like are paving the way for female performances to not just command power, but to command respect and natural respect, not from the characters in the movie, but from you, the audience member, because her power 
sticks out to me in an overall sense in the same way that female heroines in action movies or dramas or any other kind do because she is a char- she is an actress that is super confident with herself and her performance that is lending that into the character. You know what I'm saying? Like so then by that sense you are able to understand and respect a performance that's not just from another male actor with big shoulders. Um, no, I agree 100%. And I, and I think that that's kind of a powerful element of not just Babyface, but other pre-code films dealing with women's stories is that post-code, a lot of women's stories become codified and stereotyped. This is an era where these films are able to explore the reality surrounding women at that time and in, in, in many instances, the realities that women still face today. And I would actually love to dissect Babyface with with a woman in particular to talk about how this deals on a point-by-point story basis. But I think it was important for Ryan and I to talk about the code because we've had talks about censorship before in the past prior to this podcast. And I, and I knew that this would be a good subject and film in which to dissect that, that discussion. Um, and I will say that, like, I think that the, this, what we're seeing in the modern era is thankfully far and away better than the production code and even what the, whatever the MPAA even is today. Because I've looked, I've looked at it strangely, Ryan, in superhero movies. Okay, how many superhero movies have come out that are PG-13? When I was growing up, PG-13 meant we still had to wait till we were at least 10 years old. My three or four year old nephew's been watching every Marvel movie that's come out, and those movies are not strictly for children. They're 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 not. They contain very dark things going on in it. Like um, I think of Civil War. How like everything that Baron Zemo's doing in that movie is coming out of a dark spy movie. <laughs> you know, like that's not appropriate for children technically. No, no. but people are still going because parents are deciding for themselves what they think is appropriate to watch and not watch. Um, And I think, thankfully, it's also opened up the realm of what really constitutes an R-rated movie these days. I think streaming has kind of helped that because here's the thing. You could put a parental block on that streaming service. Kids are smarter these days. They're way fucking smarter than any kid that existed in the 30s and 40s they know how to get around a parental lock. And unless you want to have the MPAA policing each individual household, you almost kind of have to throw your hands up in the air and give up. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you, like, show... Like, I'm not going to show my nephew Halloween, like, tomorrow. That's a dumb idea. He'll get scared. But <laughs> I think it is a matter of personal decision that should be dictating this. And what the code did was remove people's personal freedom to choose what they wanted and didn't want in a movie. Because even if the moral majority is outraged by this, but that's not fair to everybody (laughs) for one group like that to dictate what everybody else sees. And I think Babyface and The Code are a good example of a dark time where films were, were... on the cusp of censorship, but they had this one last bout of freedom before a dark period between 1934 and 1967, 68, 
where things were able finally to be free again. And and there are there are films in there that are still fantastic, but they are compromised by forced endings, uh, by by reinforcing toxic stereotypes, and in many cases, disenfranchising women and people of color. And so one of the beautiful things about the code not existing is now stories of every kind of nuance and indication can be told. And I would rather live in that world and not live in a world where you, I am being told by a, a panel of people what is appropriate and not appropriate. Because it's not just about sex, language, drugs, and violence. It's also about the way we view society, the way we as a culture embrace certain elements of change. And if you stick in this, this moral pool of, uh, of sticking to these quote-unquote American values, then all you're doing is disallowing the ability for culture itself to change. And that's the real danger of the code. And why pre-code cinema, before it had to get neutered, went out with a bang <laughs> with some of the most notorious films that have ever existed. In fact, there is a film that will be on my list, I can guarantee you, from 1933, called Flying Down to Rio. And and I will explain it when we talk about it at the end of the year. But there is a scene in that movie that is beyond amazing. It is one of the best scenes that explains something that you could do in a pre-code era that is from a societal point that you were not able to do one year later. It's like a good day and night example. Um, but on that note, Ryan, I want to thank you for sitting down to talk about Babyface with me. Before we leave, let us know what your final thoughts are on Babyface and let talk a little bit about how, how do you see Babyface in the world of cinema today, whether it's from story or performance? How, how do you... How do you view that as a modern audience? I would say that Babyface is an important film and that people should watch it. I think it deals with uh, feminism in a frank way that wasn't really dealt with at that time. Um, I think anytime you see Barbara Stanwyck on the marquee or the poster or the Blu-ray or the DVD cover or streaming box scroll... You should watch her films. I think she's that great of an actress. Um, yeah, I think um, it's... What was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, it's just like, have you seen like elements of Babyface? Have you seen it in any movies today that you watch in the modern realm? Like like what it may have paved the way for? I, I, I don't know if I can picture something like that. The only thing I can relate to, and it's <laughs> they're totally different films, but there's a film with Harrison Ford and Melanie Griffith called Working Girl, where it's kind of the same thing, mm -hmm. where, um, <laughs> you know, you see the similarities. Yeah. Um, and I think, unfortunately, because it came out at the end of the pre-code era, that it kind of got lost. And I mean, when they found in 2005 the, um, uh, the pre-release version, and then it was entered yes. into the you know, Library of Congress is a historically significant film. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that it has this um, second life. Yes. And I, I think it is a film that if you like movies in general, you should sit down and watch. The performances are really incredible. Um, the writing is sharp and it deals with a f issue that I don't know very many films deal with it.
Yeah. And, you know, I'm always a negative Nancy when it comes to John Wayne. It's one of my favorite John Wayne movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's in it for like two minutes. So he's a, you're good. I qualify. It qualifies as one of my movies. I was listed in there. Um, yes. And uh, on that uh, censorship note, I will point out that there is a there is an amazing element of this film being finally released with both versions through TCM's Forbidden Hollywood uh, collection series, which is now available through Warner Archive. They've repackaged them. And the the the, it, the this film being found in such a pristine quality, untouched and untampered with, it's 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 amazing. I would love to watch both of these cuts side by side with a uh, with moment of pause on either end to allow to see the changes and to understand from a filmmaking standpoint how this completely how the theatrical cut in a lot of ways, butchers the pre-release version. But you can also see the difference between visually communicating the explicitness versus pulling back and implicating far more. I think it would be a good exercise to do it side by side that way. You know, I like Gus Van Sant did that with his Psycho remake and the original Psycho just for shits and giggles. I think that this would be a far far more useful experiment by comparison. Um but 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 it would allow you to see the actual difference. Um but on that note, Ryan, thank you so much for sitting down and talking about Babyface with us. Really quickly, promote your wares, promote your existence, promote the fact that you have a motherfucking podcast. Oh, thanks. Uh you can find me on social media at Real Nerds Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And I keep, I guess I should sign up for threads too. So by the time this is out, we'll probably have a threads. Um, So yeah. And you can go to our website, realnerdspodcast.com, where not only do we have all our episodes on there, but we also have articles that I constantly write about um, the things I love. Right now I'm writing my 150 favorite films. And um, basically I spoil the fuck out of the movie. I give a whole recap of it and then, I summarize why I like it at the end and mm. um, and that's what I'm doing right now. And it's really fun. Um, yeah. And that's where you can find me. Wonderful. Um, I, I don't know if we need a threads, but um, whatever you and Brad decide is fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read that they already have like a hundred million like users. Do so. they really need 101 million? <laughs> yes. Okay, fine. I guess we'll just deal with this. But anyway, no, thank you so much, Ryan. Really, really fun talking with you. I wanted to get Anytime. you. We're going to have you back for the Glee of 33, but I think we'll probably get you in for one more before the year is out. I'll tell you what you you've you've been you've been very patient. How would you like to bring back Cary Grant for the Eagle and the Hawk on the Ballyhoo? Oh my God, I would love it. This will be my first time watching it, so this will be a first time for the show, but first time for myself overall. I would be. I think that's a great idea to to get us back into the Cary Grant sphere. It's been far too long. This charming Archie Leach boy has been far too gone from this podcast. He needs I, to come back. I, uh, Zach, he's in 72 films. 
though, I mean, we've only done like three of them. Let's, you know, pick up, the, pa- get more. Pick up the pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're just going to, you're going to resurrect him from the dead so he can just whip me on a, on a hamster wheel, aren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> get to work. Faster, bed. faster. I'm going as fast as I can, you charming man. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much buddy and that is going to wrap it yep. up for this episode of yesteryear valley who review you can find out more about us on the back half of the program now coming up on the show the bally boo is almost near ladies and gentlemen i know that mr ryan frost might want to return for one i'm sure we'll work out on a title with that but i can announce that matt willicks will be returning to the show uh and he is bringing with us one of his favorite films of all time the Wolfman and Tyler maybe and Matthew Murback are returning because we're going to be continuing our Disney journey with Disney in the fifties. That's right. That beautiful, beautiful time where the animation department was back. Television was on the rise and some kind of theme park was built. Um, I don't think it exists anymore called Disneyland. Yes. I think that's what it was called. Uh, so stick around for that. Uh, but until all of that and until next time, folks, Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod and now on threads under the same handle. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our introductions were done by Henry Jarvis. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Wow.